This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hi everyone, and welcome to episode 313 of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast, presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Hello, Adam. How's it going? Good, how are you? I'm doing well. I have some thoughts about your previous episode. Of course you do. Okay, so for those Look, who... I acknowledge that you did mention The Incredible Journey. I mean, you know. Yeah. I No, so for people who might have missed, uh, Jill did an episode Thursday mm-hmm. where she did all the cat books because mm-hmm. while she was gone, I did all the, the dog books. And here are my three quick thoughts. One, I feel like a low blow to use Alice's Adventures in Wonderland against me. That, Look, <laughs> that hurt. It's not my fault that they don't have a dog in that. It's not really like a cat book, though. It's just a... The Cheshire Cat is not in it very much. I'm just saying. It's like I, that would be like me using Wizard of Oz and calling it a dog book. I would have used Wizard of Oz and using a dog book. All right, fair, that's fair then. Um, the other thing that made me laugh was I was just thinking like when you, you said something, I like laughed out loud, and you're like, "Cats are the greatest domesticated or non-domesticated." And your point about the fact that cats have like lions and tigers, I very true. Dogs do have wolves. You're like, what do dogs oh, have? I guess that's true. But, All right. No, no. Fair. But um, the only thing that just made me laugh is I was just thinking about how, like you said, when I did the dog books, I got some hate mail from people that are cat lovers. And I was just thinking about like what hate mail from dog, like the difference between cat and dog. Like people would be like, the quote unquote hate mail from dog lovers would be like, here's some pictures of my puppies. See, here's the problem. Here's the problem. This is like the Slytherin thing, right? Because like you just assume... That the dog people are going to be nicer just by sheer fact of owning dogs. And that the cat people. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I couldn't do those episodes <laughs> together. I guess we'll find out. I guess we'll find out. I'm just saying. I enjoyed it very much. I was laughing to myself. Look, it's my own episode. I can put cat books, whatever kind of cat books I want. 100%. There. Oh, I like genuinely. I, that's why I love you when we. Alice in Wonderland against you. <laughs> I love when we do episodes together but i also love when we do them separately because then i get to listen to your episodes and it's like listening to a podcast that i'm just subscribed to so i enjoyed it very much but i'm just curious to see what if we get people although now that we've done both if you were to get mail from dog lovers i imagine they'd just be like well you did the we already did the dog books so i'm just curious to see anyway i just want to share my thoughts because i enjoyed it and it was making me laugh um if people want to get hold of us with their own thoughts, where can they find us? They can go to our website, professionalbooknerds.com. From there, you can get all of our social links. We are on Twitter and Instagram, at ProBookNerds. You can email us at professionalbooknerds.com. No, you with can an email o- us. With, a, with an overdrive in there. <laughs> you can email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. Wow. Okay. And I can join our Viber community. Yes, you can. And as you're going through your Professional Book Nerds reading challenge, if you have any uh, need any suggestions just email us and if you finish your list which a few people already have just send those to us as well at the email we have a a folder and there that we're just saving the ones that we get so we'll, at the end of the year we'll, we'll pick some winners so if you need recommendations for any of those go ahead and let us know uh today's episode is an interview i did with samantha shannon 
who is the author of the um, Priory of the Orange Tree, which comes out today's Monday. So if you're listening to this on Monday, it comes out tomorrow on Tuesday. It is a high fantasy novel that is so much fun. It is very, very long. It's over 800 pages. And we have some fun talking about why, uh, basically, she has an ongoing series already and she didn't want to do an ongoing series. So she's like, no, I'm making this one book. Fair. And then it kept going. Um, But it is. It's it's very long. And we talk about where the story came from and all the the research that she did and uh, world building and how when it comes to building a world and, and research, a lot of times you can get so into the research that you never know when to start writing the book. So she has this really just interesting way of doing uh, her world building where it's more about putting the characters into like a a bare bones version of mm-hmm. the world and then letting them kind of decide where the world's going to be built out. It's really it's really cool how she describes it. It was something I'd never thought about before. So uh, we dive all into that. It's a long conversation, which makes sense for a long book. Uh, but I really think you guys will enjoy it. And if you're a fantasy reader at all, I her book is great and we talk a lot about dragons as well because sure her dragons are awesome and the movie Dragonheart which is where sure, some of her ideas sure. came from which I had forgotten about and so now I want to reread her book with only Sean Connery voices so. <laughs> um, yeah I think people really enjoy it and the book is great so definitely go check it out and it's beautiful which I know the authors don't always have a lot of control over the color and the the visuals of the, really. the cover mm-hmm. it's really really pretty so um, are there other things you think people should know about? I don't think so. Okay. Uh, I will say when this comes out this week, uh, at the end of the week, I will be in Tucson at the Tucson Book Festival. So if you're going to the Tucson Book Festival, come to the middle of the festival, you will see a big giant truck. And it's the digital bookmobile that Overdrive takes all around the country. I will be there with the Digital Bookmobile all weekend. So if you are at the Tucson Book Festival, come say hello. We're going to have authors there and a whole bunch of stuff going on. It'll be really fun. I think we have like a selfie station or something there to tell me about. So, um, yeah, it'll be cool. If you're in that area, be sure to come check it out. Um, okay. I think that's good. I think that's yeah, everything. Yeah, I think that's everything. Okay, cool. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed this interview with the wonderful Samantha Shannon on the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Adam again, and I am incredibly excited today to be joined by Samantha Shannon, who is an internationally best-selling author of the wonderful Bone Season, uh, currently trilogy, of which there will be several more books coming out in the future. Uh, her books have been published in over 26 different languages. She is born and raised in West London, and the book we'll be talking about mainly today is a title that comes out on February 26th, The Priory of the, Orn- of the Orange Tree, which is really a wonderful story. I can't wait for all of you to read it. But before we do that, Samantha, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's always such a pleasure to do podcasts, and this, this one sounds amazing, so I'm really excited to talk about it to you. So I'm going to have you start us off with what I imagine is probably an impossible task, but that's giving our <laughs> listeners a brief introduction to your book, because there is a lot going on here. Yeah, um, it's pretty difficult to sum up a book that's 840 pages long. <laughs> I actually had the most, in, me and my publisher kind of were going back and forth about how we were going to write the blurb because there's so many stories in the book that we weren't sure 
which ones to focus on. So eventually we just decided to focus on the three main female characters, but there's, <laughs> there's a lot bubbling under the surface. So Priory of the Orange Tree is a reimagining of myth and legend from both East and West. It's a novel about what happens to humans when there are dragons in the world. Uh, it weaves 16th and 17th century history into a high fantasy setting. And the basic essence of the story, it kind of follows several societies that each have different views on dragons. The world is divided by a dark ocean called the Abyss. And on one side of this ocean, water dragons are seen as benevolent gods and have a strong relationship with humans. And on the other side, all dragons are seen as evil, whether they are associated with water or whether they breathe fire, they are all just pure evil. And in the midst of this, Queen Sabran of Innis, who lives in the West, has been raised to believe that her bloodline holds the original big bad dragon in check. But she's very reluctant to get married and conceive an heir, which is kind of a problem. <laughs> Meanwhile, in the East, um, a young boy stumbles onto a beach in the middle of the night and sets off a whole heap of problems for a dragon rider in training. Uh, so that is the best summary I can produce. <laughs> that was actually very impressive. I'm very impressed by that. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I, I have a lot of questions about, obviously, everything, but especially to start with the dragons, it's something where there's so many dragons in you know histor in uh, in fantasy books that have been in the past and in, in modern day fantasy and and for some reason as a reader we we keep coming back to them and they they can kind of tend to be predictable but yours are so unique and original in the way that you came up with them so i guess just from a a craft standpoint how did you devise what your dragons were going to look like and how they were going to interact with humans? And I guess just like take us through what went into that because they're so unique in the way you've devised them. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad you think so. Um, so my personal kind of childhood history of dragons, um, the first time I ever saw a dragon in media was when I saw Dragonheart, which was in uh, mm -hmm. 1995, on, and I went to see it for my fifth birthday. And I completely fell in love with that film. I was just completely obsessed with it. And ever since then, I, I've always loved dragons. So I always knew I was going to write my own dragon story at some point, someday, somehow. Um, and then, I, so I always kind of, I've always had a fondness for talking dragons. So I, I always wanted to put them into Priory. Because um, I find that, like, as much as I love the dragons in Game of Thrones, I just don't think of them in quite the same way unless they... I just think that sometimes they're a little bit more compelling and interesting when they talk. They're a little bit more human-like. So that was one element I definitely wanted to get in there. Um, in terms of the the dragons, like how I decided to, to build the dragons, for want of a better word, um, so I was kind of intrigued by the massive, massive difference between how dragons are viewed in the East and the West. And obviously this is a, a huge generalization. There are examples of bad dragons in the east and good dragons in the west but broadly speaking in in eastern countries dragons are often associated with water and they're considered benevolent and in the west they've been historically associated with evil and with fire and that's such a, a sort of an extreme opposite that i thought it might be interesting to try and build a magic system around that so i ended up kind of creating this magic system where it's there's like a magic of fire and a magic of kind of starlight and water. And uh, that's that's kind of where the, the idea originally came from, I guess. So it was a love of talking dragons and then 
the kind of difference between different dragon mythologies that I found really interesting. And then because I'm the kind of person that likes a massive categorization system, as you can probably tell <laughs> if you've read the Bone Season, um, I decided to kind of weave in other sort of creatures from medieval beasteries and whatnot. So I have cockatrices and basilisks and they became part of the dragon system. So, uh, yeah, it was just uh, kind of my, my world building, my love for world building kicking in and just me kind of obsessively creating this new system of dragons, which I hope is unique-ish. I, I'm so glad you brought up about the fact that they, they talk because, and this isn't really a spoiler, people will, will learn that. I think it's like page 50 or something that, that you discover yeah. that these dragons can speak. Because when um, most nights, my wife and I will kind of have like a long period of time where she and I are just silently reading separately on the couch. And when I was just starting the book a few weeks ago, I got to that part and like audibly giggled. And she's like, what is so funny? And I was like, the dragons talk. This makes me so excited because you're absolutely right. Like giving them the ability to share their feelings or just be a little bit more expressive and emote. It, it made me, I'm so happy that you did that. And now that you're mentioning Dragonheart, I haven't thought about that movie in so long, but now all I can think of is your dragon sounding like Sean Connery. I know, it's just the best that he has a Scottish accent. It's just such, it's just so wonderful that he's voiced by Sean Connery. But yeah, no, I think, I think a lot of people feel that way about dragons because I guess Game of Thrones has kind of, you know, rightfully because it's awesome, dominated the dragon sort of, culture of of the uh of media recently so and they don't talk but i always thought it'd be fun to bring back uh talking dragons a little bit um and also read silently reading with your wife sounds amazing you now have what i'm picturing as the ideal marriage oh it's it's one and we have two um slightly older dogs now so they are both uh, pretty calm after they've gotten their evening walk and, and all that good stuff. So yeah, she uh, she and I both, she's a very big benefactor of, of me getting a lot of books because of the podcast. So she usually gets her pick <laughs> of the litter and then I'm reading whatever I'm reading for an upcoming interview. Yeah, it's it's a nice little peaceful way to unwind. I highly recommend it for anyone who's not. Oh, that it. sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's. I will say though, talking about, you know, dragons who speak, you're right that with Game of Thrones being so prevalent, especially now, kind of leading into the last season, um, and they're, you know, the, the three main dragons, they're not speaking. I think people do tend to forget, but really, I mean, there's, you know, there's Smaug, and there's, I guess you could call Falcor a dragon from the Neverending Story. Like, there's a lot of dragons in books that, at least I grew up with, that did speak. So I guess maybe it is just because the whole Game of Thrones thing was so in my mind that I had forgotten of all of these dragons that, that do talk, but... There are a lot of them from from pop culture and, and literature that, that do speak and share their thoughts. Yeah, you're right about Smaug. I'd forgotten about him, actually, but he's a, another dragon that I just immediately loved, primarily because he talked. Like, I just, I just loved his kind of eerie conversations with Bilbo, and that, that is part of why I, I was so attached to Smaug. Uh, so something you mentioned as well, uh, talking about the, the dragon kind of, mythology in the east versus the west and he said it's a little bit you know it, it can be a generalization but it's the easiest way to kind of talk about it and in mentioning that i i have seen you know across your social media and things it is clear you do just a untold amounts of research in these types of things so what went into the actual building of your world as well because you mentioned you know refer you leaning or falling back on a lot of older literature and and history and mythology and things like that so can you take us through because like you said it's an 800 page book 
there is so much in here. So I imagine the idea of building this world, especially after having built an entirely different fantasy world for your ongoing series, I imagine it had to be a little bit um, of a unique experience. Yeah, I mean, the process of building the world has taken quite a long time. I mean, I started writing the book in uh, April 2015, and I think I only finished it sort of properly for the last time in sort of July 2018. So it was a pretty much a three-year process of building it all and figuring out the story and figuring out the world. In terms of research, um, so Priory is uh, partly a reimagining of the legend of George and the Dragon. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure how prevalent that is in America, but it's a, it's a pretty big deal here because George is our patron saint. So I grew up hearing the, the basics of that story. So, you know, the basic story that everybody knows is that, you know, there's a beautiful princess who's being threatened by a dragon and a handsome knight comes and kills the dragon and they live happily ever after. And uh, I... I kind of question this because I, I was interested in knowing where the legend actually came from because it always bothered me a little bit. When I when I was a really little kid, I hated the knight for killing the dragon. Mm. And then as a teenager, I kind of discovered feminism and I started to be bothered by the total passivity of the princess. And I was like, why can't she kill the dragon? What's mm -hmm. going on? So I ended up researching and that research led me into several different versions of the St. George legend, one of which involves St. George while he's fighting the dragon, he rolls underneath an enchanted orange tree, which protects him. So um, I actually wrote a 4,000-word essay about this for a website the other day because I just <laughs> go so deep into this research rabbit hole that I just had to share some of my findings. Um, so that was, that was a big part of it. Um, then I was also researching history. So I was familiarizing myself with kind of 16th and 17th century events from various countries, which fed into... Priory. So um, originally I, I sort of had this idea that I would write a dragon book, but I wasn't sure what the kind of aesthetic was going to be. I didn't really want to do medieval, just pure medieval, because I think that happens, you know, so many fancy authors do medieval. And uh, one day my, my little brother, because I was still living at home at the time, he, he came in and asked me for help with his homework, and his homework was on the Spanish Armada. And I thought, oh my gosh, I've never, I'm sure, I'm sure there is one, but I've never read a fantasy that's kind of Elizabethan. Mm -hmm. So I started to research the Elizabethan era and kind of the Elizabethan court when court, you know, the court was dominated by women, like Elizabeth's intimate women. Um, and also then I started to research other places. So I was researching uh, the history of Japan at that time and China and Spain and Netherlands and a few other countries. And um, that was a lot of it because I was trying to familiarize myself with, with history that I wasn't immediately familiar with. Um, so I actually went to Japan to, to carry out some research as well. Um, and yeah, so those were the, the main things, I guess. There was the researching the legends and then researching the history. Um, and it also took me an entire year and a half, I think, just to come up with a naming system for the book because I'm a very detail-oriented person and the way the characters and the places were named were really important to me and I, I could not decide on a system for so so long and then finally I cracked it but it was about a year and a half where none of the characters had their proper names because I just didn't have a, a really good system for naming people. So that's really really interesting. I, while you were writing this like were you writing the story while these characters didn't have their official names 
Yeah, I was. Um, I was sort of, I sort of, a lot of them have placeholder names. I mean, some of them you can actually, if, if anyone has an advanced reading copy, you can actually see differences even as late as those arcs going out. Mm -hmm. Like, there's characters whose names change between that and the final version, because I was just, like, right up to the last minute, I was changing names and tinkering with the language and doing that kind of thing. But, yeah, I think I, I believe in kind of researching as you go to some extent. The, the way I world build versus storytelling is that I kind of build a, a skeletal world. Um, so I do the, the basic research that I couldn't start to write without. And then I just throw my characters in there and they kind of become the engine of the world building. I start to think about, you know, what would these characters be seeing on the street? Um, so, I don't know, they might see someone selling food. Okay, what kind of food were people selling on the street in Japan in the 17th century. So that's the kind of, I sort of do a reasonable amount of world building at the beginning, but then I kind of do it as I go along, which I think makes a lot of sense, because otherwise you could be world building forever if you were trying to build a completely perfect world with no holes in it before you start writing. I mean, you would write an encyclopedia before you wrote the actual <laughs> book. I was just going to say that's a really interesting way of saying it, because... As someone who just in talking with you for a few minutes, like you strike me as someone who you use all of this research and all this knowledge that you gain and you, you clearly have a, a passion for doing the research as the basis of your writing. I feel like if you didn't decide at a certain point just to say, OK, I'm going to start with what I know so far and, and go forward, it would be impossible to ever feel like you have the proper amount of knowledge to to tell these stories that are based in myths and legends. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm a massive perfectionist. And the, the hardest part of writing a book for me is always letting it go, because even though I'm really proud of all my books, I, I could just tinker with them forever <laughs> if my publisher wasn't like, no, we have to send it to the printer now, remember? <laughs> Um, but honestly, like up to the last minute, I'm, my poor editors just, they, they have they have to deal with me like, you know, five minutes before the book goes to print. I'm like, wait, wait, can we change the name? It's not right. Um, so yeah, they, it's, it's definitely something that I have to resist and I just have to kind of get on with it in the end and just start writing even and then just kind of research on the go. So that's what I'm doing at the moment for a new project I'm working on. I'm sort of reading the research books while I write the synopsis. So speaking of tinkering and editing and things like that as if people follow you or follow kind of the the fun of priory as it as it gets released here on social media every i feel like everyone who receives an early copy is sharing the just sheer size of the book that you wrote and so yeah. and it's really i'm really enjoying it i've done the same thing like the fact that it just can stand in the middle of my like table by itself on its spine makes me very happy it's very soothing i know it's huge i think i think it could genuinely be used as a weapon oh 100 oh absolutely it could be used as a weapon it is i was laughing because they your publisher sent um our office a few copies of it for our librarians to review and then one for me to, to review for the the podcast we're doing and this box arrived and it was gigantic and i was like i thought they were just sending me <laughs> samantha's book why is this why is this so big? And then it was literally just like three copies of your book. And I was like, oh, this makes sense. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's it. <laughs> but I'm curious. I, we've, we've heard stories from a lot of authors where, you know, I, I've made, anyone can, can write, but being an author takes the, the editing process and going through that and being diligent and, and being able to use that to craft your story. So how much 
how much shit did you write that isn't in this book? Um, I think I cut about 30,000 words out of it, if I remember correctly. Um, so I always knew it was going to be quite big. Mm-hmm. And I, I wrote, uh, so I wrote a synopsis for it. And I knew it, it, I didn't want it to be, you know, I didn't want it to be big because it was going to be full of just like rambling descriptions and whatnot. I just knew it was going to be big because there are four characters they each go on a very big epic journey, and I was trying really hard to make this one a standalone because um, you know I'm, I've got a seven book series on the go already, right. and I couldn't I couldn't really commit to doing another seven book series while I was doing that. So I was like, no, I'm gonna make this one single novel. It's all gonna come together at the end, and it's gonna be really satisfying and fine. So I just kept following the synopsis I've written out, and it's a synopsis that I actually sold. Pride, that that's what I base kind of selling Priory on because I'd, I'd only written a partial draft when I sold it, so I had to write this incredibly detailed synopsis to sort of support the partial draft. And um, yeah, it just it just kind of kept going and going <laughs> and going and going. And um, it, 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 yeah, by the time it was finished, it was I think the original draft was something like two hundred ninety-five thousand words long, <laughs> which is absurdly big um and during the editing process we managed to do sort of quite a lot of cutting and uh, yeah i'm pretty sure we knocked out about thirty thousand words because the final word count was something like 260 i think um but most of it most of the kind of original story content is in there and i managed to keep some of my descriptions that i loved like a whole paragraph description on a gown now and again but i think people Mm -hmm. like that kind of thing people like detail listen there's a reason that i just i was joking with a lot of our listeners because uh at the beginning i'm a huge russian russian literature fan and one of the things i had never tackled was war and peace and finally at the beginning of this year i actually did the audiobook of war and peace which was like 68 hours um and i and i feel like like is there's some parts in war and peace where like Tolstoy will tell entire descriptions of a man laying down sleeping for like eight pages and it's just because he moved his arm but there's also a reason that the book is one of the most popular books of all time so you're absolutely right people love to be shown in their mind you know specific descriptions and I think that is absolutely something that people will will be attracted to plus I think I saw you say on social media, I don't know if it was today or yesterday, I saw like a tweet you put out. It was basically like, don't consider this one massive book. It's like six shorter books that are all given to you in one thing. Right, well, it's split into six sections. So mm-hmm. I think that's, that's how I'm trying to stop people being intimidated by it because so many people have kind of been like, oh, I really want to read Priory, but it's so intimidating because it's you know the size of an entire horse. <laughs> and um, so I've been just trying to, I've been showing them the, the sections that split into. And actually, the, the first section is quite hefty. But once you get past that, the others are all pretty small. So I honestly think that you could do it in like a week if you just read one section a day. It's, it's not as intimidating as it looks. So I've just been trying to yeah. <laughs> kind of say, you know, it's, it's not really it's not really one book, it's six books, I promise. Listen, I think it took me about two and a half weeks. I loved every second of it. But also, I think especially as readers, it always makes me laugh when people who say they love reading get intimidated by large books. For me, as you said, if it's six books, if you, you know you tried really hard, and I personally think you succeeded telling this one story, uh, this one sweeping story in one book, really, as an author, you're basically saving people money because they only have to pay for one one story you've created here. Well, I guess I'm kind of making up for the fact that I'm expecting people to invest in a seven book series with my other, with the bone season. So with Priory, it's like, here you go. This is just, this is just fine. I mean, I would like to write 
more books set in the same world as Priory because I think it has a lot more tales to tell. Mm-hmm. But if any other books I write in this world will also be standalone and self-contained because I think that sometimes sometimes it's nice to just be able to dip in and out of the world and get a full story each time. But yeah, I think it's just a, a, a nice thing to do. And the bone season is fun in a in a very different way. I, I also like telling that really long, ongoing story. And it's, it's been such a privilege to be able to do that and to follow these characters and this story for such a long time. But it was also kind of a, a refreshing change to write Priory. Well, and to be fair, people can read Priory while you're bringing out the next you know, kind of the next book of the bone season, because I, I know you do a really good job of providing readers with content quite frequently. Whereas a lot of fantasy writers, you know, you'll wait years and you were talking about game of Thrones, you know, George R. R. Martin, I love him, but we're, we've been waiting years and years and years for the next book. So I feel like people should be more thankful as opposed to upset that you're, you're giving them more content to read. I think you're in the right here. I'm glad you think so. It's interesting to see kind of whether people think I'm slow or fast because Priory and Bone Season are both published as adult fantasy books and in the adult uh, sort of industry uh, that it's not unusual for there to be a gap of two or three years between installments in the series or, or even longer in the case of someone like George R. R. Martin. But um, in YA, it's, you know, generally it's expected that authors get a book out every year and I think there's it's kind of a a weird thing for me because I kind of occupy both worlds. Like most authors I know and a lot of my readers are in the YA community who kind of have the the faster mindset. But then technically speaking, my my publisher is adult. So I've got these two different concepts of what is slow and what is fast. That's really interesting that you say that because to me, like I, I, while reading Priory, I never once was considered it a, like to me it was always a high adult fantasy. Like, I, I don't know. It's interesting that you would feel like you're in both. Why do you think people kind of consider you both of those things, especially when, when thinking about Priory, which, again, to me is very much an adult high fantasy novel? Well, I think Priory is a little different. The, the Bone season, the, the main character is 19. Sure. So that is a kind of, I think, young adult is officially 12 to 18 so she's very much kind of almost in that YA range mm-hmm. and also I think that the bone season is a little bit more like a YA novel like there's kind of the the categorization system and it's kind of a, a coming of age story I think I think the main difference between that and a YA novel is that at the beginning of the bone season Paige already knows about her powers whereas often YA characters are normally kind of discovering their powers and that's their story but I, I love kind of the YA community and I've kind of sort of been adopted into it, which I sort of absolutely love because mm-hmm. everyone there is fantastic and it's such a big-hearted community. Um, Priory, I think, is going to be a little more difficult to call YA because one of the narrators is 64, mm-hmm. which is slightly out of the way. <laughs> Just barely. Um, but then Tane, who's one of the narrators, is uh, is 19 at the beginning. So there's this Priory is kind of weird. It has this huge age range. So the, the narrators are 19, 26, 30, and 64. So I guess anyone can read it because if if, the, if age matters to them, then I think most people will find that they can associate to one of the characters in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, something else I saw you talking about recently, and I was wondering if you could maybe give some recommendations about it, is um, I saw you, I don't, I don't remember where it was, but basically looking for and sort of champion, championing uh, female fantasy writers. And I was just curious, like, 
because I feel like in the, the fantasy world, um, there, there can be a kind of a skew, unfortunately, which is the same as a lot of things, to older white males. Um, so I'm curious if yeah. you have any recommendations of books by other female fantasy writers that you've really enjoyed. It could be YA or adult, just basically some that you think maybe should get a little bit more attention than they are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, the tweet you're talking about is, so I I kind of, when I was younger, I never discovered a lot of the big female-authored classics. And um, so I've, I've spoken to many people who've been completely horrified that I never discovered uh, the Tamora Pierce Song of the Lioness Quartet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I did read Alana a couple of years ago, but I, I didn't read it in my childhood, so it didn't quite have the same lasting imprint on me but I I would like to read it again Um, and I got recommended loads of authors Um, but I do know a lot of newer fantasy authors because I've you know I I deliberately often am drawn to uh, female author fantasy so someone I absolutely love is Zen Cho who wrote Sorcerer to the Crown and that is a remarkable fantasy set during the Regency and it's kind of got this sort of uh, Jane Austen kind of comedy of manners about it but it's kind of set basically the the first book is about the it's sort of about a sort of a very stuffy society of magicians and this freed slave called Zacharias becomes the sorcerer to the crown like the royal sorcerer and it's it's just it's so fantastically diverse and funny and it doesn't shy away from difficult topics like imperialism and racism and sexism and it, it just roasts those and it's it's just incredibly it's just incredibly whimsical and witty and wonderful and I completely love Zen Cho's work. Um the sequel is called The True Queen and that I think it comes out in like three weeks, so you should definitely pre order that. You can read it separately from Sorceress of the Crown, but you should read both. <laughs> um what's another one? So recently uh, I read True Switch by Susan Dennis. Mm-hmm which I really enjoyed. Um, it's kind of, I think it's like the perfect bridge actually between YA and adult fantasy because it's got huge world building um, and it's also kind of got the sort of witty banter that you love about YA and it's about kind of this world where people have different witcheries or different powers. So it's kind of a, a fresh take on elemental magic, which I really enjoyed. Um, I will. I will think of one more. Um, <laughs> I'm a really big fan of. It's uh, a friend of mine actually. Her name's Melinda Salisbury, mm-hmm. and she's a, a British author. And she has written an amazing duology called State of Sorrow. And what I love about it, uh, well, I love many things about it because Melinda's an incredibly talented author. But it's basically it's a a, a fantasy book about democracy and elections, mm. which is such a a rare thing because the genre is so dominated by monarchies and it's basically about a young woman who's living in a country where it's kind of locked in a state of permanent mourning Um, and she decides to step into the political sphere and change her world and it's just it's just so brilliant i just love the the sheer uniqueness of it because of this the fact that it deals with democracy i mean that just doesn't happen in fantasy um so that yeah those are three Three books I would definitely recommend. That was really impressive for me putting you on the spot and not telling you about that ahead of time. Those those sound wonderful. Uh, if there's one thing I can do, it's recommend you some fantasy books by women. <laughs> I was kind of hoping that would be the case. <laughs> um, so towards the end of our podcast, we like to ask all of our authors uh, what we call the Nerd Nine, just nine lighthearted questions that 
They don't have to put a lot of thought into them. We used to call them rapid fire, and then I would get on tangents with all the authors, so our listeners started yelling at me and saying, stop calling them rapid fire, they're not that. Um, so the first one is, what's the last book you finished reading? Uh, oh, let me think. I think the last book I finished reading was actually Truthwitch, so I will mm-hmm. tell you the book I'm reading now instead. Sure. Um, I'm reading a book called The Five by Hallie Rubenhold, and it's a non-fiction book about the victims of Jack the Ripper. And oh. I've kind of been a, an armchair ripperologist since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, for some in, insane reason, someone took me on a Jack the Ripper tour when I was 10, so <laughs> I, I don't know whose idea that was. <laughs> um yeah, so I've, I've I've always it sort of left quite an imprint on me, and I've always been. I, well, I think I think most people who live in London and indeed many people in the world are, mm-hmm. are, are fascinated by Jack the Ripper. But it it has always troubled me that I know so much about how the five women died, but not enough about their lives apart mm-hmm. from their names. And this is a book that basically seeks to address that, and it's actually telling us about these women and their their lives and their families and you know who they actually were as opposed to just people who were murdered so that's yeah that's what i'm reading at the moment and i'm just so happy that this book exists (laughs) that sounds really really good um do you have a favorite place to read favorite place to read Hmm. um i I like to read in somewhere i can get coffee (laughs) (laughs) basically anywhere that sells coffee and i have a lovely local cafe which is kind of very sort of atmospheric and traditional kind of writerly aesthetic um it's very cozy um so i I like yeah i like writing sorry reading in cafes um i also have a membership to the british library which Mm. is just the most amazing place you can get hold of pretty much any book there um and it has reading rooms for when you want to be really quiet like you have to be absolutely silent um, but it also has a lovely members room where you can, you know, just chat and work and have coffee. So, yeah, those those are probably my favorite places to read. Nice. Uh, do you remember the book that made you fall in love with reading as a kid? Oh, that's a really hard one. I was I was always a reader from when I was really, really young. Um, I, I can't remember necessarily when I fell in love with reading. I can tell you some of my favorite childhood books. Sure. So. Harry Potter, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was in the exact correct age group mm-hmm. for Harry Potter. Just like I was the, I think I was literally the same age as Harry when the books <laughs> came out, or, or I was very very close. So it felt like it was a story about me. Um, <laughs> there was uh, Dragon Rider by Cornelia Funke, mm-hmm. which was my favourite childhood book, and it's just this wonderful adventure about this dragon called Fire Drake and his human friend called Ben, and they have to get to the Himalayas, and it's it's just very very magical and uh, an epic. Um, what's another one? Uh, blah, 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 blah. Um, there's an amazing book as well called Noughts and Crosses by Mallory Blackman. And it's a sort of a dystopian young adult book that deals with race just amazingly and um, things like terrorism and quite quite heavy subjects, but Mallory deals with them just in the most amazing way. And that, that book had a really big impact on me when I was a kid as well. Nice. What is one place you'd like to travel that you have not yet been to? Well, I would love to go to China and I'm going there at the end of March, which I'm really, really just <laughs> cannot wait. Um, I was I was actually going to book a trip there anyway, but then I've been invited to go to a book festival there. Oh. So it's perfect timing. I was so, I was just so pleased. Um, where else do I want to go? And I would also really like to go to Iceland because 
I've actually hit most of my bucket list already, but mm-hmm. my my big thing is that I really want to see the Northern Lights. Mm-hmm. So I would I just love to go to Iceland and. I probably have to go there a few times because I know that you can go there and not see the Northern Lights, but I really need to start my my Aurora hunt. So I'm hoping to book my first trip to Iceland at some point quite soon. Uh, do you have a favorite holiday to celebrate? Oh, um, I guess Shrove Tuesday or Pancake Day. I don't know if you guys have that in America. Um, I think everyone sort of has a Pancake Day, but what what was the first one? Shrove Tuesday, we call it. So that's the the sort of the proper name for for pancake day oh okay perfect that's awesome um you kind of answered this one but i have to ask anyway coffee or tea obviously coffee (laughs) uh cats or dogs oh man this is a harder question than it seems um (laughs) i don't know because the thing is i like i like separate things about them like i love that dogs are just so loyal and so friendly and they look at you like you are actually god (laughs) <laughs> but then cats, I kind of appreciate their sort of slight saltiness and the fact that they are just very much doing their own thing. Um, I, I guess I'll, I'll, I guess I'll go with cats just because I have to choose one. Okay, uh, you might have answered this one as well. But favorite food? Oh man, uh, probably I'm going to sound hilariously stereotypically British here, but it's probably fish and chips. <laughs> <laughs> that is phenomenally British, and then. Uh, the last one of these, if you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would you pick? Um, well, I, I have actually had dinner with them, which is funny. So I once had dinner with Margaret Atwood, oh. which is was, it was one of the greatest, well, it was kind of the greatest moment of my life mixed with the most nerve-wracking moment of my life because I just, I was sat next to her at this dinner room and we, I, I just couldn't think of what to say to her because The Handmaid's Tale had such a huge impact on mm-hmm. me. Um, and I just sat there in silence for like 10 minutes. And then I finally just turned to her and I let out this stream of consciousness kind of <laughs> declaration of, of love for her. <laughs> and she was, she was very nice about it. But I was so emotional that after she left, I actually cried on my editor's shoulder for about 10 minutes. It was, it was very, very high, high feelings that evening. Um, but she's, she's a lovely lady and incredibly uh, sort of gracious. Um, but I'm kind of cheating by saying that because you asked me who I would have dinner with. So if I could have dinner with someone dead, it would be Emily Dickinson, um, who I studied at university. And she's the only poet that I can I can pretty much open any page in a collection of Emily Dickinson poems. And I can always find some kind of comfort and meaning there. And I think I, I feel like we get on well with one another. She's kind of a stay at home kind of in her room type person like mm-hmm. me so yeah we could we could meet and have dinner and, and not go out to parties on club. <laughs> oh man that is perfect okay last question for you what do you hope readers take away from reading Priory of the Orange Tree hmm, I it's always difficult to say that because I think you, you never know what experiences they're going to bring with them when when they arrive to a book I guess I hope that it will make them consider the maybe some of the prejudices they have against other people and just the idea that we're actually all a lot more similar than we think we are. Um, and also I hope that they take from it uh, even more of a love of dragons because I feel like dragons are, are going to come back soon. Like I feel like there's going to be a big surge in dragon books. So. I just hope that everyone kind of comes away from it loving dragons even more. <laughs> That's absolutely perfect. Samantha, this was so much fun. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. 
Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.